0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker practicing primarily in the greater Toronto area but making it my goal to become a coast to coast practitioner in real estate investments. I'm
1: joined here by my wonderful co-host, Nick Hill. How's it going, Nick? It's going well, man. Practitioner sounds like we're we're like doctor real estate <laughs> over here, but I know I know what you mean. We We are real estate doctors. I mean, 80% of real estate advisory business
0: right now is is triaging. Bad deals, I think, right? Like how many DMs do you get
1: on a regular basis of like, (laughs) hey, I mean, we had just did a whole episode on it. Should I sell at a loss? That's very true. That's gonna be a good episode. That's number 10. So now we're officially episode number eleven. We're we're well into the double digits here. And I was talking about this in the last episode about the, you know, how passive is real estate investing, especially for a small cap guy like myself. And let me tell you, yesterday, the passiveness was Illustrated in the fact that I had to spend about an hour and a half getting multiple different quotes for bat removal. Not fun. Apparently, bats are the hardest pest to remove. And the quotes I were getting were. In the multiple thousands of dollars, like up to $5,000 to remove bats. Now, obviously, you know, it's not really a cost thing at this point. The bats have to be removed. One of the tenants, I mean, I would be absolutely terrified if I had, would you, let me ask you this would you sleep in a room if there was even a 1% chance a bat would like, be sitting on you when you woke up or if there was a bat in the room one percent chance would just leave it yeah I, I would I, I
0: wouldn't really have an it like I'm weird that way <laughs> I still get like yeah not stuff doesn't really bother me okay well th- you are not a good example for the rest of the population yeah yeah I'm probably the worst person to ask that. like like I sleep at a hunt camp pretty regularly that I'm sure that there's been some mice or snakes that have maybe cuddled up with me in my sleeping bag
1: mice are fine snakes hell no and and bats I just I don't know man I, I can't I can't do it so anyways back to the lack of passiveness. You know, I'm not going to go up there and fix it myself, but I do have to as as kind of landlord and acting property manager, I do have to deal with issues like this when they come up and in a timely manner because as we've said time and time again, real estate is a relationship business. So that took up a couple hours yesterday that I hadn't planned for, but yeah, that's me. What do you got going on, Dan? Anything anything exciting? I know we've got something exciting this this afternoon.
0: Yeah, so we got that segment with Global News talking about Static payment variable rate mortgages, a little bit more about trigger rates and just giving general knowledge to the consumers, right because I think that the the journalist who reached out to us believes that you know there's not getting that main street level education that we need. so I'm really grateful to have that opportunity and I think it's it is a story that needs to be told because I mean we are one rate hike away from a lot of those trigger rates actually
1: being hit right yeah totally and and i mean at this point even though we've seen some movement in the bond market in a in a better direction i think the general sentiment is still that those rate hikes are fairly inevitable at this point just based off of where inflation is still sitting but
0: yeah and i mean the bond market is also forward looking and it's not always completely accurate on a on a day-to-day basis so like yeah i mean they might be pricing in the cuts by of a certain nature or at a minimum we saw stop, stop seeing hikes by you know the end of the year that's sort of what they were alluding to but would be nice right but it doesn't necessarily mean that that we're going to see those rate cuts come down or that that i mean we don't know how big the next hike is but it's pretty well guaranteed right like there's they're still on the hiking cycle i think we need to get through that before we start
1: really figuring out what it means for those to come down yeah. Now, speaking of hiking cycles and, and rates and just kind of a disgruntled property sector, today's show topic, even though this is the Canadian real estate investor podcast, we're not going to be primarily talking about Canadian real estate. At least for the first part of this podcast, we are going to be talking about the Chinese property sector and what that means for Canada. Now, Dan's done a whole bunch of research and been following this for, I don't know, the last year since, I guess, Evergrande kind of set the stage for a little bit of, I guess, disruption or destruction or whatever you want to call it. But we've got a pretty well-researched and very interesting episode today where essentially we look at what's happening in the Chinese real estate space and look at the – possibilities of it affecting the Canadian real estate market. So yeah. Dan, why don't you why don't you start us off here? Yeah, so
0: I think this one hits close to home for Canadians, especially because, you know, we we like real estate. The pre-construction sales system that we're using, you know, is relatively similar to what we're seeing in the Chinese market that is sort of at the you know, the core of a lot of these problems, which we'll get to. And the other thing is, you know, we're hearing comparisons that this might be China's Lehman Brothers moment. That you know this could cause another global financial crisis per se, a la two thousand eight, two thousand nine. And the question becomes: you know, is there a degree of toxicity?
1: Right. So, what is just? Can we go over what a Lehman moment is and what that would mean?
0: Yeah. So the easy comparison on the Lehman side is when this first happened with Evergrande. The valuation of the debt that was not being paid back or serviced quickly was around that $600 billion mark. So it quantifiably sounded a lot like Lehman. And, you know, it was mortgage debt and it was in a global financial superpower. So that's why people like to draw those parallels. I would say that it is distinctly different. I mean, in the US, there were some systemic issues, the subprime lending issue, that, and the stacking of mortgage-backed securities and insurance securities on top of those, swaps, CDOs, etc., that caused this to be a bit of a domino effect. China's challenge that they're dealing with on the credit side is a little bit more direct, right? It's developers and end users. I mean, that's obviously an oversimplification, but it's not a, it's not a... Financial instrumentation challenge, right? This is just a, a capacity problem. It's a delivery problem. Units aren't necessarily being handed off the way that the purchasers expected them to be, and rightfully the purchasers are deciding that they don't want to have to start paying mortgages on those because they aren't what the contract stated, right? And again, like the comparison with Canada is, you know, we're hearing a lot about developers asking buyers to pony up differences in material costs, right? Developers approaching buyers in in Canadian pre-construction saying, hey, we need 100k from you if you want to close this unit. Otherwise, we're going to cancel the entire project or whatever it is, right? You're hearing of developers holding deposits hostage in the Canadian market. So, there are a lot of kind of, I wouldn't say similarities, but things happening that people are reaching to draw parallels. And so, I think that's why this big looming question becomes, is there a degree of contagion to what could happen in China's market, or alternatively, could something like that happen here?
1: Totally. And if you want to know more about the Lehman moment or any of that that we're referring to, go watch the big short. Great, great movie. Does a great job kind of entertaining and explaining. And that's kind of where the concept too big to fail came from, if I'm not mistaken, right? So... Before we jump in here, I'm just going to rifle off some of the statistics from the research that I pulled here, and then we'll kind of have just an open discussion about the similarities between what we've been seeing in the Chinese property sector and could that affect the Canadian market? And, you know, are we seeing similar things? So, again, by no means am I an expert here, but this is just some well researched data. So, home buyers are delaying mortgage strikes on 230 plus projects banks in China have 9.2 trillion in debt which is kind of sounding the alarm because that 9.2 trillion dollars in debt is all from the property sector people are losing their life savings and banks some banks in some Chinese provinces have actually stopped withdrawals so we see home buyers in more than 50 cities now defaulting on their debts willingly. I mean, they are doing this on purpose. They are, you know, These come hand in hand with some strikes that we've seen. This has now affected between 100 and 230 projects across 50 to 80 cities. There are a lot of projects that are even half completed that are just kind of sitting there. Going back to our favorite company, Evergrande, which is now the largest debt pile in the world, I believe at like $89 billion or something along those lines. of those failed or on hold projects belong to Evergrande. So I mean, they have kind of set the trend and now there's a lot of other smaller scale developers which would be massive in the Canadian market but small for the Chinese market that have kind of followed suit and started to put a hold on these projects. So. The Chinese property sector has gone from a pretty big asset and a massive part of their GDP, I believe it makes up almost a third of their GDP, to probably one of their biggest liabilities. Here's a crazy stat. 28 of China's top 100 developers have either defaulted, failed to pay, or sought an extension from their creditors. And another wow factor, sales of real estate in some places in China are down 72%. In just over a year, so what does this mean? I mean, look, economies of scale say that obviously Canada and China are two very, very different places. Yes, landmass, we're actually not that far off. Canada it's approximately nine point nine eight million square kilometers, whereas China has nine point five nine six. So China is makes up about ninety six. of the size of Canada. However, China has 160 cities, 160 cities with a population of over 1 million people. So it just goes to show the drastic, drastic difference when you look at Canada that has three cities of over a million people, 52 cities with between 100,000 and 1 million and 339 cities between 10,000 and 100,000 people. So you know, although they are, we can make comparables between our two markets, which we're going to, you know, analyze throughout the rest of this podcast, we do need to keep in mind that we are dealing with totally different demographics, totally different population statistics, and just a very different property sector in general. So, Dan. What do you think about all this? Like, what is the implication that Canada, there is, sorry, there is an implication that Canada is fairly heavily exposed to the Chinese economy through foreign investment, as well as just, you know, the Chinese property sector is so large. Could what we're seeing in China with mortgage defaults, with properties being put on hold, massive scale developers having major issues, could this happen in Canada?
0: Yeah, so I think it's an interesting question, right? You know, there's two different paths that this could go down. The first one is, could this happen in Canada? And the second one is, could this have an effect on Canada, right? And I think that there's this implication that, you know, we have had a lot of Chinese migration in the past in Canada. I think that it's important to make the distinction between foreign direct investment and foreign ownership of real estate versus, you know, domestic ownership data by ethnicity that we can get from the CMHC has recently released a, a report on that, which I'll go through some of the statistics there. But you know there's this this sentiment that Chinese capital really likes Canadian real estate. So the question becomes is a contraction in the Chinese economy going to cause people to sell assets in the Canadian market? And you can kind of divide that question into a very easy bull or bear case. Number 1 is, you know, there's a negative wealth effect, so that would maybe cause people to liquidate some properties here in the Canadian market to cover positions in China's economy, as an example, if foreign capital were to be as as big of a component as some people like to say. And I'll get to the data on that as well. The other element is whether or not maybe Canada is perceived as a safe investment and that we might actually see a flight to quality. And as you start to see, and you've seen things like this, in the past, in Canada, where you know our real estate economy was quite resilient to the last global financial crisis two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and people like to almost double down in their positions in Canadian real estate investment for a variety of reasons that we can get to, maybe not in this episode. But so the question is basically: Do you see a negative wealth effect where people are pulling equity out of assets in Canada to cover other positions, or do you see? a net positive effect where it actually is a bullish factor where more people want to invest in Canadian real estate because of that safety, because of that security. And the answer to the question is really anybody's game. And, and I think that that's, that's kind of the the cool part about discussing a lot of these phenomena that we're seeing happening in the market is that it, it you know it goes back to, again, choosing your own investment thesis, and as a result, being able to, you know, kind of, well, this is one of those times where there are distinct different paths where the range of potential outcomes, you could, one return could be very different from another depending on what you decide. I'm just going to present a bunch of information that pertains to this before I try and draw a bit of a conclusion on what I think, you know, regarding the bull and bear case discussion is the most likely outcome. So, you know, you do hear this sentiment in the industry that, Chinese capital owns a lot of Canadian real estate or that it's a major source of foreign direct investment. But I haven't actually been able to verify that there are two data sources that tell us a little bit about the foreign direct investment side. And China doesn't even show up in the top 10 FDI sources in Canada. It's mostly other OECD and mostly Eurozone nations. And sorry, what FDI? Right. FDI is foreign direct investment. So that would be companies or individuals from countries outside of Canada investing in Canadian business. It can be in real estate, though that's obviously a little bit of a different one. We don't have a beneficial ownership registry in Canada. Mm -hmm. So it's a different... One for them to actually like verify, and that could be some of the challenges with the data here. So, there's this kind of probable confusion where people think that they conflate foreign investment with domestic investment because Canada is home to a large Chinese diaspora. So, you know, Chinese Canadians are one of Canada's largest ethnic groups after Europeans and First Nations population. CMHC report has that Chinese ethnicity has the highest percentage home ownership in Canada above all others. So, and I'll actually pull the stat when we get back and forth in the banter here. But they also have the Chinese ethnicity as the highest value of property ownership in Canada. So these are again these data points where you sort of you hear these sentiments in the market, and there's obviously an attraction towards real estate in Canada and higher value real estate in Canada. The Bank of China's mortgage lending in Ontario has increased substantially in the past several years, especially since the beginning of COVID. There is a Globe and Mail report on this that you can look up. Just Google it. Bank of China's mortgage lending soars in Ontario, wanes in BC. And again, so we've known that there's a historic relationship and degree of attraction that's evident in in Canadian real estate here. I think actually there's there's a
1: quote here from that. If you Want to. Yeah, so I mean, foreign owned property declined in British Columbia from 2019 to 2020 and at a steady 2.2% in Ontario over the same period, according to the Canadian Housing Statistics Program, which analyzed property assessments, land registry data, and tax filings. So in BC, non-residents owned 3.1% of all residential real estate in 2020 compared with 3.2% in the previous year. So very minimal difference there. In Richmond, BC, city with the highest foreign ownership rate, non-residents owned 6.8% in 2020 compared with 7% In 2019. So again, you know, we're seeing the needle move, but in the 0.2 percentile region, right?
0: I think it's, again, it's an important distinction because you hear about this as if, you know, that there's this high degree of foreign ownership, right? And that, you know, the, even the government has acknowledged it in putting in this foreign ownership ban, this two-year foreign ownership ban, as a policy measure that was, you know, attempted to, I would say, look like it's cooling the market, let's say, or or stifling. It's a demand measure. And we saw similar things happening in 2016 and 2017 on a provincial level in Ontario and British Columbia. And, And those did have, I mean, they were sort of I wouldn't conflate the correlation and causation, but they sort of happened around the same time that you know we saw th- those two markets have a pretty significant drawdown, right? And so, you know, it's it's worth noting that Canada and China don't have exceptionally good relationships right now. You know, there's these concepts of the two Michaels that was happening, Meg Wanzhou, the Huawei rejection of the 5G, etc. Obviously, we don't want to politicize the conversation too yeah. much. The question, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. Let's not go there. But yeah. Yeah, we save that for the first dates, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, from my perspective, it's just like, there's these sentiments that you see in the media, you see on social media, you hear in the industry that, you know, foreign ownership is is this massive thing that's happening.
1: And, and but... But the data just doesn't necessarily support that. So yeah, it doesn't seem like it is with these. And would I be correct to think that those policies and those headlines are, are kind of a bit of a red herring to distract people from what's actually happening, and and maybe shift the attention towards you know foreign ownership, and and that that might be an issue where where the data kind of says that it's not really that big of the issue that we see in Canadian housing.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, on a policy side, it's like you have a government who hasn't necessarily made major policy changes to support cooling the housing market or making the housing market more affordable. And the the week that they did that announcement of different policies that was happening was sort of right after it came right after Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh did the pseudo coalition government. I was actually on on Gary Clute's podcast, which you and I are going to be returning to soon and discuss this a little bit. That, you know, I felt that right after that they were gonna come out with some sort of pretty aggressive policy on the housing side, right? And but what happened was the market started rolling over prior to that budget announcement in the Canadian market, at least in, in the greater Toronto area. And you're starting to see it happen now lagging. So this is back in February, March, right? And so I don't necessarily know what conversations happen behind you know those closed doors, but if I was going to guess, it would be, you know, okay, well, now we've got the government or we've got our administration for another three years because of this coalition. We need to make some significant changes in the housing market. Let's do them sooner rather than later so that we can say to, you know, we can still say to Gen X or sorry, Gen Z voters and mo- young millennial voters who were marginalized out of home ownership, hey, guys, look, we made an effort to make housing more affordable for you. And at the same time, you know, the prices will have hopefully recovered as a result. Now the reality is that the foreign ownership ban at the federal level had very little to do with like right now we're seeing an organic effect or a cyclical effect caused by monetary policy which it, you know is is central banks which is supposed to be completely different than or completely separate from the administration or the, the fiscal policy side. But the reality is the timing was very convenient, right? So they, you know, I think that to the layperson out in the economy, a politician could easily say, well, you know, our policy happened and then house prices were lower within six months. So, right, you know, right. and all that's maybe all they need to save to the average person, right? So it's the old bait and switch. Right. And so it may be not so much of a distraction, but just a convenience from a timing perspective. Now, you know, a little bit tangential there, but the reality is I think it's an important conversation to have because I don't think it necessarily – Made a significant impact on the on the housing market, but I also and I think the reason that that is is because of this data that you just presented, right? We don't have this massive foreign ownership of real estate in Canada that people are alluding to. What people are trying to allude to, and, and it's almost like a discriminatory conversation, is that there are different ethnicities that have high home ownership rates. And it's a very distinct difference, right? There's no foreign direct investment exposure or not not no, but there's no major systemic risk of, of foreign direct investment exposure to the Chinese real estate market from my perspective.
1: Wow. Okay. Very interesting. I, I want to backpedal a little bit here because I feel like we kind of glazed over a few very important things there. One, I want to talk a little bit about Evergrande because this is uh, this was and I believe still is the the largest property developer in the world. And I, you know, from my research, which is extensive, probably nowhere near as extensive as yours, but I found it pretty fascinating. Right, I, I think that as much of a success story Evergrande was. They also had the classic: we got so big, we got greedy. It kind of turned into a little bit of a Ponzi scheme. And I mean, at one point, they they had bought a soccer team. They had started off several other businesses in an attempt to diversify, but if your core business is struggling majorly, their core business was real estate development, maybe it's not such a great idea to go buy a soccer team and, and, you know, diversify into all these other things that you don't have expertise. I think they even tried to start an electric car company. So, you know, with the largest property developer in the world having 35% of their projects in revolt or being stopped or and and people aren't paying the mortgages on those because Evergrande's not releasing the properties to them because the properties are either not finished or the workers are on strike what does that tell you because we've started to see you know a little tiny bit of that happen in Canada compared to the major stuff that's happening in the Chinese property sector. So tell us a little bit about Evergrande. Yeah. So, from my perspective, it's really just a, if I were to look at it
0: from the outside looking in, given my understanding of, of the development space, I would say that it's sort of just a, a bit of a flying too close to the sun, right? You, you, you almost outgrow, you run into a capacity problem because you're outgrowing and you're setting expectations that are very difficult to meet. And then at a certain point, you have to keep the liquidity in your business moving, right? You need to, deliver your product so that people can pay you for it so that you can pay your creditors and you know this is very similar mechanistically the mechanics of this working is very similar to the Canadian real estate market and i have my fears about the canadian real estate market and how this works which i'll get to when i try and see whether or not we could see this happen in canada but what happened here was you know similar to the things that were happening in in canada where you have Developers, you know, we have huge demand for property, right? Developers are capitalizing on that demand. They're pre-selling units and using that as a fundraising tool to deliver units. So they're getting commitments, they're getting deposits, they're getting agreements of purchase and sale, they're pre-selling these pre-construction units, very similar to the way that we do it in the Canadian market. And we will have probably have Jordan Skrinko on here to to really analyze how that looks in the Canadian market. But the challenges, you know, in the same challenges that we're seeing happen in Canada: construction costs are inflating, labor costs are inflating. There's labor shortages. The labor markets are extremely tight. Like imagine basically the all of these things that are happening in the delivery of Canada's housing right now, right? These major supply chain housing supply chain issues that are happening in Canada, and then multiply them by you know the magnitudes of thousands, right? Because that's how big this is, right? In Canada, yeah, I mean there are. We have a, a pretty oligopolistic setup in the development space. Very similar. So an oligopoly is a market that is controlled by a few key players, and China's market would be very similar. So that that's one similarity that you could make, one comparison that you could draw. But in Canada, you know, there's there's this, also this middle ground where there's a bunch of what's called the mid cap developers who are trying to become members of maybe that oligopolistic space in the market. Everybody wants to grow to get to that big boy, the too big to fail, you know, the where you're protected by the economy and the government and whatever. And in Canada, so most of the leverage and the – I don't know if I would call it irresponsible – activity, but the more exposure on the credit side exists, I would say, in sort of your sub institutional. So below those those large cap developers, it's sort of in the middle of the market. These are, you know, groups are really aggressively trying to become those institutional scale investors. In China, the difference is, you know, you have this big systemic all of the things are happening in one centralized place and all of that is happening at the top right so you have the biggest developers and like i think the comparison with the lehman brothers moment is difficult because there's no you know really lending that's happening that's not necessarily above board, right? There's no ninja loans. There's no, you know, it's, it's really just a, a delivery and a capacity problem. And and people are saying, look, we don't want to pay for these units
1: because they're not what we <laughs> originally signed up to pay for, right? So, I mean, I, I like what you're saying there. And I think that's a good takeaway that, you know, we are seeing a lot of the same things happen here, right? We're seeing some projects get canceled. We're seeing the labor shortages. We're seeing some developers pull back and and have issues, exponentially smaller here, right? I mean, it's happening here, but as you said, times 10, times 100, times 1,000, and and that's what it's happening in China. I mean, yes, sales are down in multiple provinces and cities across Canada, but they're not down 72%, right? I mean, I think I saw King City, which is a very nice suburb outside of Toronto in the GTA. You know, there was a stat that came out that said, I think prices were down 50%, but – I believe that to be quite skewed because, you know, the prices in King were a little all over the place and, and very high. So if you just take away if the number of sales starts to decrease and, and there's a few sales that are lower, that can skew those stats. But I guess before we I really want to get your take on on what this means for the Canadian investor and why we're doing this episode on it and, and you know why we should be aware of what's happening in the global economy, right? If I'm gonna go buy a duplex in, in Edmonton or in Regina, why the hell do I care that Evergrande, a company I've probably never heard of, isn't building, you know, forty five <laughs> units in a province in China I've never heard of. So I don't know if you had another piece before that, Dan, but but I'd love to get your take on what this means for for the Canadian real estate investor.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there's there's a a couple of different things to unpack from what you just said and I can use it to lead into that conversation. So, you know, the one is like if you're talking about King City, especially like King, you know, the the data point on the sales side was I think people were saying, okay, average house prices in King City dropped 50% from peak. But like the reality is I think there's 58 sales in King City as an example you know, we're going to start seeing some really, really bouncy data as sales volume corrects to its normal levels. And it's going to scare a lot of people, right? But the reality is, you know, the market's going through a downward price discovery and that process takes can take a long time. So I think that, you know, exercising patience, we talked about this a little bit in, in the last episode, and informing yourself on what's going on in the macro environment and starting to form an opinion on what Direction you think that that is going to cause things to go. So let's try get an understanding for what this means for Canadian real estate investors, right? So again, there's this sentiment that foreign investors, foreign capital, or immigrant capital buys a lot of real estate in the Canadian market. There's this idea, you know, and we we talked about it on my most recent Twitter space, which was you know is immigration a bull case for Canadian real estate and. You know, the question is Is home ownership still a big part of the Canadian dream, similar to the way it was to the American dream? Or is that changing? Are we becoming sort of one of these more late cycle, late stage capitalistic economies where you end up with more people renting than owning, et cetera, et cetera, right? And is there a major difference in quality of life between somebody who wants to move from per se a, you know, China or India or some of these other sources, there are major sources of immigration into Canada versus, you know, or do they want to come here and buy or if they can't afford to, right? and. That's where you almost need this, this with a country that is, you know, population growth is driven by immigration. We know that statistically. Our natural population rate is actually almost negative given. So that's like your births and deaths yeah. that's happening in Canada. So we rely on immigration to grow our economy and to, and in order to do that. You need a healthy global economy for people to have money to invest it into Canada, right? To afford to move here, right? Like, there are different classes of immigration that you can apply through, but most of them require a pretty hefty fee and an, and an amount of capital that's being moved into the Canadian economy. That's how the federal government does it, right? And so, if you examine that and you start to say, okay, well, there's a wealth contraction happening in China, as an example, where we do see, you know, People coming and a lot of them purchasing properties, as we know from the CMHC report, which I think I have up here now, you know, the average values of those living in an, the chart here, figure one in the, this report, if you want to Google it, is called property values very significantly by race. And this is a CMHC report as part of the research insights, figure one, average property values of those living in an owned home by racial group, 2006, 2011, 2016. And the Chinese is the highest valuation on that chart. There's another chart that CMHC put out as well, where the same data, or sorry, the same set is the ownership percentage. And again, Chinese have the highest percentage of ownership. So more of them proportionately are owning homes in Canada than any other group of people. Interesting. Yeah. And so I think that we want to understand whether or not this could have a contraction in in valuation in the Canadian real estate market. I would say that I don't think that if you examine any of these factors, I think that the, you know, and and this is the cool part about having discussions about immigration, having dis- discussions about the value or or the connection that we have to other economies is we are an incredibly diverse country, right? Like if I look at that same CMHC report and I read all of the different headings at the bottom you know it's aboriginal white black latin american arab filipino other visible minorities southeast asian mixed race white and visible minority multiple visible minorities south asian japanese korean west asian and chinese those are the categories that CMHC has it divided up by and so you almost have this encoded diversification you could call it right the way that we talk about it as investors the diversification of you know, your portfolio, right? You want to have your portfolio spread out across a bunch of different assets. And the way that immigration has has caused a, almost a protectionary effect in the Canadian market is that we aren't necessarily massively heavy, heavily exposed to one single foreign economy. I think that the scarier part is when you hear about that concept of China's market becoming contagious globally, right? Not just to Canada. So I, again, I don't think that there's a, a reasonable parallel that can be drawn to say, yeah, if this happens in China and it's it's really bad, it's going to affect Canada the most. No, I think it'll affect us as much as it'll affect anyone else. And it's that's going to be significant if it gets bad. But I don't necessarily know if it's isolated to Canada because of that globalization and, well, and and diversity cultural yeah. diversity that we have yeah. you know m- people from all over the world want to immigrate to canada right and that's what you know this the cmhc report shows us right these different ownership rates and and property valuations and that has a degree of diver- – like that. that is, you know, in Canada, we say diversity is our strength, right? And and in a lot of cases, economically, we're seeing that right now, right? Which is really interesting from my perspective.
1: Yeah. Let me just give you a few thoughts as to my take on this. I mean, we've all heard the, the saying, when the United States sneezes, Canada catches a cold, right? So is that going to be the same thing, right? You know, if something bad happens in the Chinese property sector – How will it? When will it? And what will the effect be on the global economy, on the United States, and of course on Canada? Who is you know? I don't have the stats here, but you know, one hundredth of the of the size, if that, probably one thousandth or or something. Anyways, my overall take on this is, you know, why should the average Canadian investor who's listening to this podcast now care whatsoever about this? For me. And we've t- spoken about this before. Knowledge is power, right? If you want to be a good investor, you need to know what's happening not only in, not in your province, in your town or city that you invest in, but you'd, you you want to know what's happening globally. To a certain extent, you don't have to be an expert on this, but it's probably worth noting that there are some major risks in China, and it's a it's worth noting that those risks aren't so different than some of the stuff we are seeing here obviously the scale is is quite different but you know these are things to be aware of and and it's about being creative when when these things do happen right if we see contraction in capital from foreign investment if we start to see an exodus of foreign investment in Canada does that leave opportunity for purchasing those properties does that leave opportunity for joint venturing with some foreign investment? You know, to me, I, I just find this kind of stuff fascinating, right? Like we need to be aware as investors, we need to be aware of what's happening in all markets. You know, I, I know the TCI guys very focused on Canadian markets, but obviously, they need to cover and they need to have an understanding of what's going on in the global economy because we're so interconnected now. So, yeah, I mean, my, my main takeaway from this is, is know what's happening in real estate everywhere and be able to extract certain things from that knowledge and apply them to exactly what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely, and I think the broad question becomes:
0: Does this create a secular shift in the way that people are thinking about real estate as an investment class? I think over the past, like you know, since two thousand eight happened, you saw this almost fear in touching the real estate asset for a little bit of period of time, and Mm -hmm. you know, we discussed this in our in our first episode actually about how real estate performs in rising rate environments and in recessions, right? And you know, do we end up going back down that kind of rabbit hole where people are? afraid of the asset class because it ends up being the cause of another major financial problem in in a global context, right? And that's where, you know, you really have to wonder, what it means in the Canadian context because in Canada we're obsessed with real estate but, you know by all accounts we might be the only people who love their their real estate as much as as China's market right now and yeah. China's real estate market is yeah. the largest asset class in the world more wow. than US fixed income more than US equities right crazy and now China has a larger GDP than the United States so there's ripples that could happen as a result of this. But I think the big question is what happens to the secular perspective of the real estate asset. And I think that if we start to see that waning, if we start to see a lot of people stepping away and saying, you know what, this is the second time in 20 years that this has happened. And maybe this stuff isn't for the layperson to be using as an investment. That might be where it could actually have a a major impact is... Sentiment, And I think sentiment drives all markets, but especially in Canadian real estate, it really does. And I, I'm just curious to see how that plays out. That to me is where if you're an individual, that's why you should be reading this stuff. You should be checking it on on Reddit. You should be following these threads on Twitter, seeing how people are opining on or describing what they think is happening or what they see is happening and whether or not it's actually having a positive or negative net sentiment because if if sentiment starts to erode values are probably going to follow them further down and maybe that means that you're going to wait because you you think a better deal is going to come because you think people are are getting scared of the real estate asset
1: wow really well said I want to say one more piece and then and then we'll we'll cut it here you know I couldn't agree more I think consumer confidence buyer sentiment whatever you want to call it is is massive it it drives economies. This goes back to a very simple thing that we've said time and time again. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but if this is your first time listening and your first time hearing it, fantastic. This is why you stay informed, ignore the noise, and add value. That would be my my closing remarks. Stay informed, avoid the noise, and add value. Any closing remarks on your side, Dan? No, I think that's everything from my perspective. I really enjoyed this episode. It's it's good
0: to unpack. It you know these are tough ones to do. It takes a lot of research, and fortunately, you know CMHC has been doing some pretty good reporting on this stuff. So I would totally advise you to check out
1: their reports on the composition. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Not our typical episode, but hey, it's a lot of fun. Stay informed, everybody.
0: Yeah. And it's been talked about so much, right? Everybody's wanting to hear about what, you know, everyone's asking what my take is on it. And I really, I didn't have one objectively because it's not really a qualitative discussion. You have to boil it down to the nuts and bolts. Are we exposed? Yes or no. What does that look like quantifiably? Right. And then, you know, you kind of finally arrive at, okay, this is ultimately going to become a sentiment problem. And, And nobody knows, nobody can predict the sentiment of people. So you just have to stay in touch with what people are saying. Love it. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Like, subscribe,
1: leave a review. We'll talk to you soon.
0: The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037.
1: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.